Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi minute. I recently attended a show inside Studio A at the Delta Music Institute at the Delta State Fighting Okra, my alma mater. And the featured guest was an amazingly talented guy that I've admired and known for quite some time, but it's been a while since we connected. We're talking about rock and roll, R&B, country, and pop legendary stuff here. As he played on so many hit records, you can't count them, and produced for some of the biggest acts ever. From his early days in Muscle Shoals and writing music history there to working with Elvis, the Beatles, Roy Orbison, Dan Fogelberg, Jimmy Buffett, to name just some. He basically has done it all and won it all in our music business. And he's got a brand new book all about it. Welcome in a Mississippi Minute. Today is Norbert Putnam. Hello, Norbert. Well, I just want to say it's my pleasure to be here, Steve. Uh, Mississippi is one of my favorite places in the whole world. My wife is from Grenada. I don't know if you know that or not. I did not know that. I did not know that. Yes. And she brought me to Mississippi 15 years ago. And that's how I ended up building the studios at Delta State. And uh, so so Mississippi is near and dear to me. And I have many great friends down there. See, I went. So you went and stole the Mississippi girl. By way of Alabama, I went and stole an Arkansas girl uh, and brought her to Mississippi. <laughs> but obviously, we lived in Nashville for 20 years in Franklin area and then decided to to, to move the family back like the Clampets going backwards. And we had a great time. Yeah. And it was awesome. Just been really a blessing for all of us here. So it's good. Well, I understand all of that. We have to go home. You know, I'm back in my hometown of Florence, Alabama. Wow. Which is one of, one of three cities that make up the Muscle Shoals area. Oh, of course. Of course. North Alabama, right? And, and it's... Alabama, Muscle Shoals, you know, the the oddest place in the world for a a music center. I want to talk about that. So let's get started because you've got a brand new book out. And the book you talk about, it's called Music Lessons. And and this is part one or volume one. I think that that means that I'm probably going to have another book coming, but uh, it's fantastic. So I want you to take us and our listeners to your Muscle Shoals days of growing up. Um, your, you know, your earliest memory of grabbing instruments and, and what got you into music and then what got you guys hot? Well, first of all, I never planned to be a musician. I never planned to be in the music industry. A couple of things happened here at Muscle Shoals. Florence, Alabama, which is one of the four cities, 
there was a young man who grew up here, and he went over to Memphis, and he found Elvis Presley. His name was Sam Phillips. Right. And Sam went to school at Coffee High School, which is literally five or six blocks from where I'm sitting this morning. But if Sam doesn't go to Memphis and find Elvis, I'm in the insurance business. Okay? Unbelievable. My dad was, a, was an insurance man in Alabama, and he was planning on starting an agency that would represent lots of different companies. And it was going to be Putnam and Putnam, okay? And mm-hmm. I was to go to the university here, get a business degree, and join him. But at the age of 15, oh, my dad had played the bass when he was young. He actually played the bars on Bill. Okay. And he kept the old bass. And I'm 15 years old, and I'm going to school at the TM Rogers, which is just right outside the city here. Isabel went to school there. So it turns out a few people have gone there. But Danny Cross comes up to me. Danny says, Norbert, I'm putting a band together to play this Elvis music, and you need to be the bass player. And I said, well, Danny, I don't know anything about playing the bass. <laughs> and he said, well, he said, this Elvis Presley stuff only has three chords. Surely you can find three notes. And I thought, well, I'll bet anybody could find three notes. So I talked to my father. <laughs> He said, no, look, kid, he said, I, I don't want you to ever have any illusions that you can make a living in the music business. He said, but I'll show you how to tune. He called it the damn thing. That's what he called the bass, okay? <laughs> <laughs> he, said, but, uh, he said, I'll show you how to tune the damn thing, but don't ever have any illusions that you, you could make a living. He said, as a matter of fact, I can just tell you, there's no way for anyone to make a living in the music business. Wow. Well, so my father was pretty adamant about that. But... Uh, but uh, I, he showed me how to, how to tune the strings, you know, G-D-A-E. And, uh, and I would come home from school, and I would put on these 45s, uh, Elvis with Scotty and Bill. And, and you know, Bill was, was, was having to double as a drummer, so he'd go, he'd play a note and slap the bass twice. Yeah, he was creating sort of a rhythm, right, that was, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I play guitar, sort of. And that wasn't easy to do in the early, you know, that hurt. You get blisters on your head. Yeah. But but we played a few sock hops, and I was hooked because the girls went crazy over, you know. Yeah, that ch- that's the a game changer, never... right? Nor- that's a game changer oh, when you're young. Well, listen, yeah. so now it's a great combo. You know, you got you got music, you got cars and cheeseburgers and girls. <laughs> there wasn't anything else in a 15-year-old's life, you know. <laughs> right. so, so, I, so I'd come home every day and start slapping bass. And, you know, I would, I would play from 3 o'clock till 9 in the evening, and my mother would come and unplug the record player. <laughs> and my dad would say, enough of that racket, he called it. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but but uh, a year later, I meet David Briggs and Jerry Kerrigan, mm-hmm. and they're forming an R&B band. And so uh, with my father's help, uh, I traded in my mother's upright piano on a Fender bass and amp. My father secretly hated my mother's piano playing. And so... That was sort of helpful to get it out of the house, you know. And I joined Jerry Kerrigan, and I go from Elvis to James Brown, okay? Right? Right. You know, every, all the college kids could dance to James Brown. They didn't dance to Elvis. So we're doing, um, we're doing James Brown, Ray Charles, Bobby Blueblad, and Dan Penn joins our group from Vernon, Alabama, who had a really thick R&B voice. And so between the ages of 16 and 18, our weekend job is playing... Oxford, Tuscaloosa, Starkville, right. and we play a fraternity party. Yeah. And uh, also at that time, at 16, I meet Tom Stafford here in Florence. In my book, I call him my delusional friend, <laughs> because Tom Stafford was this old guy. He must have been 26 or 27 years old. 
And, of course, we're 16. And he's telling us that right here in Florence, Alabama, we're going to write hit songs, we're going to make hit records. And, of course, we knew that wasn't possible. You know, you need a big city like Memphis or Detroit or Philadelphia. (laughs) You had Motown going on about then. Was Motown (laughs) rolling around? No, it wasn't yet. Oh, this is 1960, this is 1960, 61, 62 period, okay? So, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I guess they were starting to hit. Yeah. You know, I was, talk, I was talking to Mary, Mary uh, Wells, wasn't it? From the Supremes, who was down with us the other night. And yeah, so anyway, uh, uh, Dan Penn, Jordan's the group. We're making a lot of money, and Tom Stafford says to David and I, we're coming out of the movie theater one night, and Tom was the uh, manager. And, and, and he was approaching us, and you didn't want to see the manager approaching you because he could throw you out of the theater. Right. right. <laughs> and, and he's all dressed up in his blue blazer and his, his, his gray trousers and his school tie, you know, and he's motioning us to come over. And we thought, well, what the hell do we do? So we, we, we go over. He goes, I want you boys to play on some demos for me. I'm starting a publishing company. <laughs> and, uh, and it's going to be over at my dad's drugstore. City Drug just around the corner. We're going to sign hit songwriters. You guys are going to become studio musicians. And right here in River City, it was like Robert Preston in the music. Right. Okay? <laughs> 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 you know, we're going to cut hit records. Right. And I looked, I looked at David, and he looked at me, and we said, well, we're thinking, this guy's totally delusional. Right. Uh, so we asked him, well, what, what can you pay us? And he said, I can't pay you anything. <laughs> But I can get you in all the movies for free. We said we'll take it. He didn't yeah. even finish the finish. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and we started going up there after school. And Tom would sign anybody that can make a rhyme. The songs were awful. None right. of these people could sing. But we were learning how to invent an original part on an original song. Well, this experience that we gained, uh, it really came into play about two years later. Now, a lot of people have been coming up the steps and he's signing them. The right. songs are awful, they can't sing. And I think it was somewhere around my 17th year, maybe early 18th, when Arthur Alexander comes up the steps. And Arthur's this handsome, Harry Belafonte-looking guy, okay? <laughs> About 6'2". And Arthur starts, he pulls, he pulls some po- poems out of his pocket. Well, they're actually songs, but he didn't have any music. And he starts singing a cappella. <laughs> wow, the songs are good. They're well-formed. And his voice is great. I remember David Briggs said, Arthur, come out to the piano and, and, and let me find the chords you're hearing in your head. And so Arthur would go out in, in the studio with David, and David would try this chord, that chord, and Arthur would be saying, no, no, the other one, the other, that's the right chord. And it would take him about 20 minutes to find all the chords, and then Kerrigan and I would go out, and we would do a demo. And uh, Wow. <clears throat> And, and now this is around my 18th year, and we're a little better now at doing parts. A couple of weeks later, a young man named Rick Hall comes up the steps. Right. He's another old guy. He must have been 28 or 29. And you know, you don't trust those people, right? But, but he, came, he came in, and he said, I'm going to raise the money, build the studio, I'm going to record all of you. <laughs> I love well, this. This is the guy. I mean, this. So, so I want you to hold it right there because we're going to take a break. Okay. We're, talk, we're talking to Norbert Putnam, incredible uh, stories. He's got a great new book called Music Lessons. Uh, you are in a Mississippi Minute. I'm Steve Azar. We'll be right back. 
It's easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Try to amend my carnivorous habits. Made an L.A. 78. Hey everybody, you are in a Mississippi Minute. I'm Steve Azar. We are with the fabulous Norbert Putnam uh, with his great new book, Music Lessons. Uh, we have been talking about, uh, now we're at the point because this is going to be a cool interview. Uh, a little different. I think this is going to be like we're reading the book or, or just seeing things as they unfold. So let's keep going, Norbert. Norbert was talking about uh, meeting Rick Hall. He's coming up, saying he's going to make us do the studio, and and this is a lot. This is where uh, a game changer to me happens. And uh, so, Norbert, take it away. Well, Rick was the entrepreneur that we needed. Okay, uh, it was obvious that that Tom Stafford's little demo studio uh, wasn't well equipped to uh, make serious records but rick comes in and he says i can do that you know that was the way rick all was so he raises the money and he bought some well at the time almost state-of-the-art gear he couldn't afford stereo tape machines okay <laughs> so but he bought two uh, uh, mono machines that were burlant concert on they'd run at 15 ips and he, he managed to buy four microphones one of which was a u87 a u47 which right. was the standard of the day and, and he rents warehouse space in an old abandoned brick warehouse in Muscle Shoals City. And it's full of cobwebs and spiders. He cleaned most of that out before we arrived here. But he only had a four-channel mixer. So, so Nor- we, Norbert, really, real yeah. quick, did he have? Did he come from money? Did he have some money? I mean, to, to, no. to go ahead and purchase all that stuff, or did he just let it ride? No, he didn't. He, he was an impoverished boy. He was a farmer's boy. But, but he married a, a, a girl whose dad owned a couple of successful car lots, Hansel Cross and his daughter Linda. And Hansel helped him raise the money to buy this gear. Okay. But Rick, I want to tell you about it. This guy has no experience producing records or engineering records, but it turns out he, could, he, had, he had a knack for balancing the band. We went into this warehouse. We must have played it 20 or 30 times before he got a good balance to mono. You got to realize Arthur's over there singing into a U forty seven. Right, <laughs> it's, it's open all the way around in Omni. Right, standing on the other side of Arthur is Peanut Montgomery playing the rhythm guitar. Okay, crazy, all on the same mic, and he's saying, "Peanut, back up another foot. You're too right. loud for the vocal." <laughs> and I'm over there with uh, Terry Thompson. Terry and I had our, our amps in a V shape with one dynamic mic picking up the bass and Terry's electric guitar. <laughs> There was one mic over Caravan's drums and one mic stuffed in the upright piano, which needed tuning, by the way. <laughs> so all the mics, oh, right, so of course. And so all of the mics, all the mics are basically, you're talking about, even though they're in, in their area and working a couple things, they're really sort of acting as room mics, too. So you, you all had to play, play it right together, correct? Oh, yeah, if someone makes a mistake. As a matter of fact, there's a bass mistake, and you better move on. And, and, and I didn't, none of us caught it. Well, first of all, we did 40 or 50 takes. I'm not sure which take Rick used, okay? <laughs> all right. so, but, 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 oh, he rigs up the bathroom, which is a tile bathroom, for, for a primitive echo chamber. And I hope you can play just a bit of that for the folks at yeah. home, because 
it sounds good, okay? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And in order for him to overdub, now the next day he puts voices on it, and that meant he took the, the mono master tape and put it on the second mono machine, played it back through an input, and blended it with a voice mic, and now the master tape is down one generation, but it has the voices. But none of the levels can be changed. All right, to explain to our listeners, because we got a lot of people going like down one generation. So explain what that means, uh, sort of, so everybody while they're driving can understand that. Well, the master tape is moved to the playback machine and is played back through the input on the console. Right. And blended with the voices in the mono back on the first master machine, which means that that first generation is now coming in and becoming second generation. Right, which, okay. which obviously makes it not quite as, right, uh, quali- the yeah, quality the way, starts the to way, disintegrate. Yeah, by, by the way, if you get my book, I go into this in more detail. And we're recording on tape, everybody, by the way. There's no, you know, there's not <laughs> digital stuff going on. So continue yeah. on. Well, well, so anyway, Rick overdubs a few things, mm-hmm. and he, 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 at last he ends up with a master copy. He jumped in his car and rode up to Nashville. And he, had, he was friends with Owen Bradley and Chet Atkins, and he plays Arthur's record. And they say, but Rick, this is more like the, a drifter's record out of New York. Uh, we can't get this on country radio. And, and so Rick is, is thinking, what do I do next? When he bumped into Noel Ball, who was sort of a Paola disc jockey in Nashville on, on the hottest radio station. And Noel says, you know, maybe Dot Records. I know the guys out in Hendersonville. Now, Dot Records has a kid named Pat Boone, oh, who yeah. actually gave Elvis a run for the money for about two weeks. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> he was another cute kid who made movies. Right. Well, 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 so, so Noel Ball goes out here. Now, well, first of all, he says to Rick, he says, now, Rick, you're going to have to give me a piece of this, but I can, I can place this for you. I love that. And Rick signed, <laughs> Rick signed a contract that I'm pretty sure he didn't read because we never record with Arthur again. Noel Ball steals him. You're kidding. And Noel, ends up, and Noel ends up producing Anna and a few of the other records that followed. He did that in Nashville. But here's the interesting thing. A few years later, uh, we were doing Tommy Rowe. He'd been over to Europe, and a band opened for him in uh, Hamburg. And uh, they were just a bar band, but they were looking for a deal. And they had a bizarre name. They were called the Beatles. B-E-A-T-L-E-S, Okay. Right. Tommy came back to Muscle Shoals raving about them. Uh, he tried to get Felton Jarvis to find them and sign them, but you know he had a bad demo, so that didn't happen. And a year later, they've got a record deal. They're coming to America. Their record is top ten in England. And they called Tommy and said, can you get the Muscle Shoals guys to back up the six opening acts that the promoter insists we have? Hmm. Because... At this point, they don't have a hit in America, but they're coming to the Sullivan Show. <clears throat> and so, and so uh, we're going to back up the Righteous Brothers, Tommy Rowe, and four or five other people. Wow. Which we were sort of excited about. But we watched them, we, we, we watched them on the Sullivan Show, and they were gangbusters, okay? Right. And, and we were invited to come to the British Embassy to meet them at 11 o'clock. But Rick Hall had us book for sessions the next day. We had to go to the airport at 12. Well, years go by, and I'm working with George Harrison in the mid-70s. And he said, we were looking for you that night. I said, well, how did you come to book us? <laughs> well, he said, well, he said, I remember the day John Lennon walked in to a Beatles rehearsal in mm. Liverpool, 
for that first Arthur Alexander. Is that not crazy? I mean, it's got to be a little bit crazy to you and surreal, right? By the way, everybody, Norbert Putnam, he is in Florence, Alabama. He's back home like I am. I'm in Greenville, Mississippi, and this is what happens. So, But it just goes to show the very first record made in Muscle Shoals makes it across the pond to the Beatles. Right. Okay. And, and, and when, they, when they get their record deal, they do Anna, they, uh, the Rolling Stones do You Better Move On. And, and John loved the B-side, which is called Need a Shot of Rhythm and Blues. That was the first thing the Beatles played, boss. You know? so, 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 I said, so, so I said, George, how did you come to book him? Well, he said, we weren't so sure we were going to make it in America. So we made a list of all the rhythm sections that played on our favorite recordings. We had the Muscle Shoals guys, the Stax guys, the Motown guys. Right. And he said, he said, we wanted to be sure we got your autograph just in case we didn't make it. That is good. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty amazing. Oh, we're talking the so Beatles here. You. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Arthur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, and Arthur, you know, obviously moved on, but but that gave you guys, okay, was there any sort of, for you guys, obviously Rick learns at this point, he's got to read a contract or have somebody that can, correct? You can't make that mistake again. And Uh, he did make enough money. I think he made $35,000. In what year? We're talking, when when are we talking 35000 This is 1962, no, 61 probably. So so he builds the, the fame studios that you see. By the way, folks, you need to come to, to Muscle Shoals because you can see the fame studios on the weekend. Right. And we've just reopened Muscle Shoals. Um, you know, for, for Rod Stewart, Paul Simon, the Rolling Stones recorded. Well, it that. never ends. It just doesn't end, and, you know. So there's a lot to see down here now, you know. But that was sort of the end of our tenure in, in Florence. We, we had hits with uh, the Tams. What kind of fool do you think I am? They still play that down in the South. And uh, Tommy Rowe had numerous hits with us. Uh, and, and Bill Lowry brings his entire group up here. We had Billy Joe Royal, Joe South, and that whole cadre of, of people coming. Amazing. And, and, but we leave. We decide, well, after the Beatles concert in Washington, uh, we really got turned on by these guys and their super loud amplifiers. They played at double the level that we <laughs> played at back in the Righteous Brothers. <laughs> and Briggs and I said, maybe it's time for us to get on up to Nashville. Nashville had Orbison and Presley, you know, and they weren't likely to come to Muscle Show. So we make the move to Nashville, and and that was a very fortuitous thing for us to do, I have to say. Now, I want to talk about that in the next segment. You're in a Mississippi Minute. I'm Steve Azar. We were with the great Norbert Putnam. We're going to be right back. Super Talk Mississippi, number one in the Magnolia State for news, weather, sports, and talk that matters to you. Don't you forget it. Super Talk Mississippi, the Super Talk app, and supertalk.fm. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Please come to Boston for the springtime. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Azar. You are on the backside of a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them. Uh, 
we are with Norbert Putnam, and I could talk to Norbert for a month uh, as long as I have enough coffee, and uh, and I would never go to sleep because you're one of the greatest storytellers ever. But it's funny, like as a songwriter, you got songs and uh, to to sing and write to write about and sing uh, when you've lived life and you've and it's honest and you've made uh, history uh, and you get to tell these stories stories so colorful because you were there. So we're right now we're moving to Nashville and in your book you've got your early years and then you have the move to Nashville it's uh it's uh, actually like look segment number 2 of three segments that it looks like in your book and then you're talking to Elvis you know you're talking we're talking Jimmy Buffett and I think in the segment I got to shut up and we got to really get to uh uh you know what it was like at, and your experience uh, at this point in your career Well when we came up to Nashville we had some homework to do uh, uh, we had to suddenly get our act together quicker than we did in Muscle Shoals. In Muscle Shoals, we, we would do 20 or 30 takes on a song, okay? And in Nashville, you needed to be able, you had maybe five minutes to do that, okay? Oh, yeah. In Muscle Shoals, I could take two hours, okay? <laughs> right, right. <You> know? <laughs> but but there, was a, there was an economic factor, too. In Muscle Shoals, we were sort of a pseudo-union talent. And the scale was about $45 every three hours. But we would work nine hours for $45. Right. So we were cheating. We get to Nashville, no cheating. And by now the scale's up to $50 an hour. And, and you needed to come in at 10 o'clock for a 10 to 1 session in the morning. Right. My bass had to be in tune. I was in my chair ready when they played the first song down by this new artist. Well, I read a book by a wonderful old Hollywood film composer named Russ Garcia. And the first page of his orchestration arrangement book said this. And it's the most important thing I can say to any musician who's trying to invent something as a writer or anything else. Your first idea is your best idea. I, I totally agree with that. Okay. Totally agree so, with that. Okay, all right. So wait a minute. So you're you're going through this, and I'm jumping a little bit because I got to get to I got to get to Elvis. I got to get to Elvis. Fast forward, you're in Nashville. Fast forward to when it when Elvis happened. David and I were having dinner one weekend. He said, you know, we're killing ourselves playing 600 record dates a year. And it really was awful. Now, we're making a lot of money. In, in 1970, a studio guy like David and I, we could make $100,000 a year driving down the studio. Right. So uh, we had maybe we had one beer too many. We decided, well, let's. If we could write that country song, you know, <laughs> we could live in the mountains and go down to the mailbox every six months. So this is our dream. So we, so we build Quadraphonic, and right away, someone comes in and says, no, this needs to be a real studio. And we put in 16-track uh, gear. Neil Young came in and did Harvest. And, come on. oh, Chris Christopherson. Oh, come on. I just have to quickly tell you the Chris yeah, please, story. Please tell me the Chris story. Chris is a cleanup man. I meet Chris Christofferson. I come into Columbia B one day, and I'm setting up my acoustic bass. And this guy, and I'll be honest with you, I thought he, he looked like a homeless guy. And his hair is all grown out and disheveled, and, uh, and he hadn't shaved in a while. <clears throat> and he's got black faded-out jeans <clears throat> and a black faded-out T-shirt, scruffy boots. And he says, uh, uh, you're Norbert Putnam. My name's Chris, and I'm going to be helping Charlie. Can I hit you that ashtray? And I said, well, Chris, I don't smoke. So, no. <laughs> but I, I, and he, so he's sweeping floors, right? Can you believe that? No, and I mistook this guy to be, I heard he was living in the attic of a house nearby. 
And he, I, we knew he made $35 a week. Well, one day he invites me for a beer, and I find out he thinks he's a songwriter. Yeah. And I said, well, look, Chris, let me just tell you, you and 4,000 other people in this town are trying to be songwriters. Your chances are slim and none. Now, that was my standard speech to anyone who said to me, I want to be a songwriter. Okay. Right. When he said, well, Scotty Moore has heard a few of my songs, and he's agreed to give me two hours of studio time. And I thought, could this guy be a writer? And I respected Scotty, right? <laughs> and we went down there, and in two hours, we did five songs with Chris, and he went out and got a record deal with him. And the next thing I know, I'm playing on his records, and Sammy Smith is doing, did she do Sunday Morning Coming Down? Which one did she do? Now, that was Johnny Cash did Sunday Morning. But anyway, <laughs> he's the hottest writer in town in a year. He calls me one day. He's back from making a movie. And he's getting the mailbox money that you and David want. <laughs> oh, yeah. David and I are still slaving over a hot base in Vienna. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Chris calls. He says, hey, Norman, everything's going great. He said, are you playing the Joan Baez session? And he said, so Chris says, could you get me in to meet her? I've got a great song for her. But when, when, when Joan Baez came, we had extra security at CVS because, you know, she had marched with Martin Luther down in Mississippi. Three months later, John Baez calls me from California. Norbert, I'm coming back to make another record. I want you to lead the rhythm section and get some of those younger players from Area Code 615 and <laughs> some of the guys from Muscle Shoals and Memphis. I want to hit records. She said, I'm doing an album of uh, my favorite contemporary writers. Stevie Wonder's song, Lennon McCartney's song, you know. And, uh, oh, down in the mix somewhere was this guy, Robbie Robertson from the band. Wow, man, I just love it. Love <laughs> and it, love so, it. And, and, and so I said, Joan, would you mind coming to my new studio, Quad? Oh, sure. She said, I'll do that. I said, well, will Maynard be producing? No, Chris is going to produce. Oh, I thought. <laughs> you see, Chris was a little timid around recording gear, console, <laughs> control rooms. But I thought, this won't be a problem because we're going to help Chris do this. Well, about two months later, we go down to Quad at 2 in the afternoon, <clears throat> and uh, Chris is back by the uh, coffee machine. In the back of it, when you came in, there was a reception area with a desk, and you could look past to the coffee machines and the Coke machines, and there was a corner back there, and he's wedged into it, and he's not moving, but he's not falling down. So I ran back to him. <clears throat> oh, he had a bottle of something in his right hand. It wasn't coffee. It wasn't tea. I said, Chris, I said, now, I don't want you to worry about being a producer. I said, let me tell you how it works. We're going we're gonna to pour some coffee in you. And you go sit at the desk and don't say anything. <laughs> and this man, with Joan Baez, will make her a great record. <laughs> By the way, that's still, that's still my advice to anyone that wants to be a record producer, okay? You book a great studio, a great band, a great engineer, you get a great artist, ask the band if you can get them some coffee. <laughs> that's all you should say. Am I right, Steve? No, no, you're right. I've had producers that were eating ice cream the whole time. They were gone. They'd come back with a big thing of ice cream, and we'd made a record because we had all of those elements in the room. So well, see, you're right. You were, then you were, you were working with the right guy. Of course. The worst producer is the guy who goes out and tells all the musicians what to play. Right. <laughs> and then they can't play it. No, but, no, but no. Anyway. Right shotgun. So, you got a right shotgun. So anyway, I said, I'm saying, Chris, I'm going to get some coffee. He says, I'm not producing a record. <laughs> Now, now I'm thinking I'm going to have to cancel these guys for 15 <laughs> sessions. He says, I've been talking to Johnny, and we think you should produce the record. Yeah. Well, I'm dumbfounded. I said, where's John? She's upstairs. I ran upstairs. She was in one of the offices. I walked in. I said, John, have you seen Chris? Norbert, Chris is inebriated. 
<laughs> Could you help me do this record? <laughs> she said, couldn't you plug your bass in the desk and play and listen at the same time? I've often thought she might have chosen Briggs, but they, they wouldn't have been able to get the grand piano in the control room. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and three nights later, uh, we do the night they drove old Dixie down. I put a bunch of drunks that were hanging out. Yeah, let's repeat that real quick. Let's. You lay down what? A, a song called "The Night They Drove Old Dixie." Come down. on, come on. Well, we're and gonna we're have that. Oh, there. That's unbelievable. And, and, and John says, she says, "Well, what do you think you want to overdouble it?" I said, "I'd like to have an audience like uh, of people singing quietly in unison." <laughs> the night they drove old Dixie down. And I went out in the hall to get some coffee. And all these singer-songwriters are out there having a guitar pool, okay? Right. And I, I don't remember precisely who was there, but I think Dave Loggins was there, and maybe Guy Clark. And, uh, and I just said, oh, I said, all of you come in and sing on this. And they had all their girlfriends, and they were pretty inebriated, too. But we had about 20 people. Donnie Fritz was there. And they start singing, and Johnny's moving the more inebriated people to the back. And <laughs> we finally got it sort of in tune. We put it on three times. And that became the choir on the night to drove. Next yeah. time you hear that song, just remember that you don't have to have all your faculties to, to, to make a hit record. <laughs> no, no, in, in that case, it just sort of, it, it can't be, it just sounds like it needed to have some people that were having a little more fun and a different place mentally than the others. Okay, real quick before we go to the break, you know, I get to let you play DJ. And since I could have picked a zillion artist you've worked with, I mean, this is the fun part. So Mississippi yeah. being the birthplace of American music, you get to lead us into the break with two guys you work so close with, Elvis Presley or Jimmy Buffett. You can only choose one. Well, well, I'd like to quickly talk about both of them. Well, you're going to talk about them, but you've got to lead us into the break with one of the one of the songs. Heck with oh, it. Oh, well, Heck. well. Well, you, you, you're going to have now. Presley's the greatest artist I've ever worked with, and I want to talk about him. But but I take Buffett down to Miami. And we do this song called Margaritaville. Okay, right. That that was to be the, the the biggest song I ever produced. We're in the 40th year in, in 2017. Now it's 2018, but there was 40 years in 2017, and we're well past 30 million sales on that song because Buffett goes out and works every year, and we sell another. Eight hundred thousand albums. Okay, so I want to talk about that and talk about Mr. Presley, who was by far the most focused, greatest singer I ever worked with. All right, so we're with Norbert Putnam. You're in the Mississippi Minute. We're gonna be right back. Stand by. Other news team covers the Magnolia State like News Mississippi. On air with reports every hour and breaking news as it happens. News Mississippi at newsms.fm, the official news provider for Super Talk Mississippi. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I left my home in Norfolk, Virginia, California. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Azar. We are in a Mississippi Minute. I think it needs to be 120 minutes today because Norbert Putnam, my guest, has all the greatest stories of the past. 
that he lived and uh, gets to tell um, all of us. And uh, blessed to have him on the show. Uh, Norbert, Elvis, we hadn't quite talked about Elvis. You, you keep jumping the gun a little bit on me, and I love it because I know what's going on in your mind. You've got everybody that ever mattered that you've worked with. But Elvis and Buffett, you had Fogelberg. I mean, you got Roy Orbison. It can never end. We could have, we could do, uh, like I said, a Mississippi 24 hours. Tell, talk to me about your first time with Elvis and Buffett. I meet Elvis in 1970, and I'm just retiring as a bass player because I've just produced this million seller on Joan Baez. And Clive <laughs> Davis flies in New York and gives me young Dan Fogelberg. Okay. <laughs> so I announced to my partner, Briggs, I'm hanging up my, my calloused hands <laughs> to go and, and, and just drink coffee in the control room and tell the band they're great. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> there was another reason. There was another reason. <laughs> Even though I was playing on 600 record dates a year and I could make 100 grand, that would be the last I would ever see of that money. There were no residuals for, for studio musicians. But record producers get approximately 30% of the artist's share. Right. Okay. So I was thinking about my retirement, all right, and when I, when I embarked on this journey. But uh, Felton Jarvis calls me. He says, Putt, I understand that you're not going to play anymore. I said, that's true. I said, I, I, Clive was giving me act after act. And I said, you know, I'm really going after this producing thing. He said, well, look. I'm going to do Presley here in Nashville. Would you come and just play that first week with Elvis? Because he doesn't want to go back to Memphis to Chip's moment, but he wants a band that can play more like the Memphis band, and it's the Muscle Shoals guys. It's got to be you and Kerrigan and Briggs. Oh, I said, I'd love to play for Presley. So I went in in June of 1970 to meet the king of rock and roll. For the next seven years, until Presley died. Seven more years. <laughs> I play on 120 tracks over the next seven years, okay? And I have, to, I have to admit, I couldn't wait to see him every time. I was doing Dan Fogelberg, and we're out in uh, Sausalito working on a record, and Felton called. Can you talk to Dan and see if he'll let you come down to Memphis? Uh, we're going to do Elvis at Stacks, and uh, I really wow. need you there. Wow. So I took Dan to dinner that night, and I said, Dan, a terrible thing happened to me today. <laughs> he said, what? I had a summons from the king to appear next week <laughs> at Sack Studios in Memphis, or he'll have me beheaded. Dan starts laughing. He goes, well, I guess if you've been summoned, you better go. So, so I, I left and flew in to do the Stack Sessions in 73. And that produced some of Elvis' best work. Oh, it's he, incredible. That old Chuck Berry song, uh, uh, A Promise Line. You know, he didn't seem to record that. Sometimes one of the guys like James Burton would start playing some old Chuck Berry lick. And I would say, let's do that. Hey, Phil, I'm going to do Promise Land. <laughs> okay. And that's how it happened, right? I mean, I love that. 20 minutes later, it's in the can. Twenty minutes. He got it on the first take so many times. He was the most focused artist I ever worked with. June of 1970. We've got, oh, we've got 30-something songs he wants to get to. And he turned to the band one night and he said, hey, have you guys heard that new Simon and Garfunkel record, Bridge Over Troubled Waters? I'd really like to show Garfunkel how to sing that song. He said. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you know what? 20 minutes later, we're playing it and he's singing it. And I want to tell you about Presley. He had... Uh, he had two different voices. He would sit and talk to me in a very calm, low voice. 
sort of like I'm talking to you now. Very sweet and kind of voice. And we were at Stacks one night, and we were having lunch. We always had lunch at midnight because he was nocturnal. He would get up at 5 in the afternoon, have his breakfast at 6, right. show up at 8 o'clock, just like everyone else on the planet, to start his day, except we'd already been up for 12 hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, so, so one night we were at Stacks, and I'm over there sitting on a drum riser, and he comes and sits down with me, and we start talking. And his voice was nice and soft and low. And he was saying, but how the hell did you get into this business? And I said, well, it's your fault. I said, uh, I said, those kids at school said that there was only three chords in your songs. And I start slapping bass. And then the next thing I know, I get a Fender bass. Next thing I know, I moved to Nashville. And then Felton calls me. Because Felton had worked with us in Muscle Shoals. He said. Right. I said, if it hadn't been for you and your three chord songs, I would be in the insurance business. And he started laughing. Elvis <laughs> is a sharp wit. I want to say, but we sat there and we have our sandwiches. And at one o'clock, he looked up. He said, "Hey, Pot, come on, it's time for me to go beat Elvis." And he stood up, and the the, the band was on his horn, and a much deeper voice. He put on his macho voice. Hey, fellas, uh, it's one o'clock. I'd like to get three or four other songs. So let's get cracking, okay? And he and he brought on that lower Elvis Presley persona. Wow. No, I, I, I love this man. He treated us like we were the kings, and he was just trying to start out. You know, at 120 tracks, he never asked me to change a note. Incredible. Incredible. So, we're talking to Norbert Putnam, and uh, I'm wondering if we can get two shows out of this is my question. <laughs> Appreciate you taking, taking the time. We've been with the great Norbert Putnam. Uh, I am Steve Azar. You have been in one heck of a Mississippi Minute. Appreciate you guys listening. I'm Steve Azar, in a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.